live. So we've got a few people here I can see in chat. Uh, thank you all very much for tuning in, for joining to this, uh, the first episode of uh, Discomfort Zone. Um, I hope it goes well. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know if there's any problems with the audio. I can't even tell you what I've been through to get this far, but I'm glad that literally 20 seconds, I think, before this stream started, um, everything magically worked. So <laughs> I'm not going to touch anything. You let me know if anything goes wrong and uh, I'll try and fix it. So I would like to thank you all for joining and thank anyone who's listening to this afterwards. Before we start, oh, thanks Crimson Cloud. Before I start, I just want to say that all of the opinions and thoughts that are presented uh, over the next hour are my own. Uh, they don't represent MSP Waves or anyone else for that matter. So uh, don't give them any credit. Um, okay, so let's just jump right in. I'll give you a general overview of what I get, what I want to do with this episode. Um, and it's going to be two parts. The first is going to be a little bit of an introduction to who I am and, uh, sorry, the path that I went on. Okay. Can you hear me okay now? Sorry about that. The mic just moved a bit. Okay. And the path that I basically have been on um, that brought me to where I am here in Portugal, about to start uh, building, designing the first uh, uh, crypto-based natural giving eco-village. <clears throat> so, uh, after that, um, I'd like to give a general overview of what the eco-village model is, what it entails, and basically what I'm going to be talking about over the next few uh, episodes. So let's get right into it. Um, I was born in Jerusalem, Israel. I was raised uh, Orthodox Jew. Uh, both my parents from, were from England and they moved to Israel a year before I was born. So I always lived in this dual culture of English and Israeli, which I don't know if you've ever met any Israelis who know anything about the culture, but these are two very, very uh, distinct um, and very different cultures. So I grew up speaking both Hebrew and English as a, my native tongue, and um, that sort of shaped, I think, a lot of the way I think and generally my outlook in life. I think I was very open to differences and different ways of seeing things right from the start. And uh, I think uh, it really sort of showed up later on in my life, but we'll get to that soon. So I grew up as an Orthodox Jew, raised in the religion. If you don't know, there are technically 613, I'll call them rules, which you have to observe. Um, it's a rather strict religion in terms of the do's and don'ts. At least that's how I experienced it as a child. So everything I'm saying right now is not a generalization. Please don't start, you know, taking my words to whatever. But this was my personal experience. So, uh, <laughs> Yes. Ah, oh, Disraeli. Um, sorry, I'm going to try. I'm just going to say I'm looking at the chat. I might not comment on everything. If you have any questions throughout, feel free to shoot them. And at the end of the show, I'm hoping to have some time uh, also to answer any questions that I haven't gone over. So just to say that. So at the age of 15, let's say I was starting to question a lot of the things that I was taught and a lot of the things that I was uh, told were true about the world. And it was a long process of about, I mean, it started a little before as well, but after three years when I was 18, I officially renounced my religion to my parents and I uh, started off on my journey uh, in atheism, basically. And uh, I just want to say that my parents, as there are some horror stories, I know a lot of people who left uh, the religion, but um, they were very, very supportive. They were obviously very disappointed and very hurt. They'd moved to Israel in order for their children to be Jewish and religious. And uh, it was a very hard thing for them to accept, but they did accept me fully. And I, I couldn't have asked them to be any more understanding, really. But from that moment on, I, I don't know how much experience any of you have with losing a religion, especially a um, 
a child's view of religion, which is so absolute, so perfect, so um, all-encompassing, that when you lose that, or when you are willing to, to give it up, in a sense, you really do lose everything. I lost not only my God, but I lost my culture, I lost my way, sort of the rules and how I'm supposed to uh, behave in the world. I lost nearly everything. And atheism was this um, very supportive answer for me. This was, well, the religion of atheism in my mind, uh, at least at the time, was science. So science in regards to looking at the world in a very factual, materialistic way and being able to measure and compare and give exact answers was exactly what I was looking for that I didn't find in, uh, in Judaism. But after a few years um, roaming around atheism, as it were, and I was uh, getting very into philosophy and these kind of subjects, um, I hit upon a subject which is very controversial, and I won't go into it now, but quantum mechanics. I was, I was very, very into it at the time. Almost everyone I spoke to, the conversation somehow I would lead it towards uh, quantum mechanics, but that sort of raised a lot of questions. And I suddenly realized that even the scientists or science, which was my new religion, uh, didn't have all of the answers. And in fact, within the community, there was a lot of disagreement as to what the actual reality was, let's say, when you get down to the quantum level. So that was another bubble burst for me, and it set me on my path again to look for somewhere where I could find these truths that I was searching for, that I was desperate for, really. Um, the answers to my questions about the purpose of life and what is death and what happens after and what is morality and what's the quote-unquote right way to behave, all of these questions were really burning in my mind. And so I continued my journey and the next religion, although I hesitate to call it a religion, but um, let's say the next mindset that I approached was Taoism. Now, if you've never heard of Taoism and you've no idea what it's about, then I suggest you afterwards look it up because it's fascinating and it's far too large or complex uh, system for me to even, you know, go through on this tiny little tidbit. But it was a huge, or it still is, a huge part of my life and I definitely proclaim myself as a Taoist uh, first and foremost. And so, uh, the general idea is that within, you know, the universe, nature, reality, there is this sort of, well, the, the literal translation of Tao is path or way. There is this way, you could call it uh, motion, you could call it a flow, whatever you want to pin, whatever word you want to pin onto it, the sort of way that the universe is going. If you look at it at billions of years, you see that it's sort of changing and in motion. And Taoism is the, I think, the essence of trying to live your life in harmony with that stream. So for me personally, I would say that my experiences in life when I feel in tune with a Tao or in tune with reality, everything becomes much easier, much simpler. Things, quote unquote, go my way, although it's not really my way, it's uh, the Tao. But you get this feeling that, I'm sure you've all experienced it, as someone said it today, the wind is in your back and you're just being carried along effortlessly doing whatever you want to do or whatever you're meant to do. So that was my first experience. It took me a long time of studying these uh, texts and these different ideas to really understand them and to undo all of the uh, materialistic mindset that science had sort of imprinted on me, well, that I had taken on. But after a long time, and I'll just mention uh, one of my great teachers in life, whom obviously I never met personally, but uh, a philosopher named Alan Watts, who's also English, and he brought a lot of these ideas to the West. And I would listen to hours and hours of him talking about these subjects. He's got a very soothing voice. I'd, I'd recommend if you're interested in the subject, he's an excellent place to start. But uh, he really got me on my way. And this became my first sort of concept of 
whatever you want to call it, God or, uh, you know, something bigger than myself, which I could really relate to. And so it was during this time, whether it's connected or not, that I was also getting very interested in uh, psychedelics. Oh, nice. Yes. I love uh, Alan Watts. Is he here, Claiborne? No, I don't think he's here. Well, I'll listen to him later. But um, basically in this time it was correlated. I was listening to Alan Watts and maybe some of you know Terence McKenna, who's uh, a psychonaut, one of the most famous probably, very active in the 90s. And these two seemingly very... Oh, sorry. My mic keeps uh, moving. I'm going to try and fix that. These two seemingly very different worldviews I felt were very much uh, connected. And I won't go too in-depth into either of them because it's not really relevant to how I got to the eco-village. But I will say that they shaped the way that I view reality and the way that I think about my purpose here uh, in this lifetime. So, after being exposed to these new ideas, I started to get a sense of, I started to get answers to a lot of these questions that I'd had. And with these answers, I started to get a purpose of what I want to do in my, with my life. And that process led me on quite a few ways. The major one would have been that I was planning to become a, a shaman's apprentice. Um, and... Uh, I got to South America. I didn't have actually meet with a shaman. I was there for six months and, you know, as things happen, I changed quite a lot and it was very important, but that wasn't the road that I was meant to go on. And so I came back from South America um, in all honesty to be with my wife, uh, well, with my now wife, then her girlfriend. And um, we both she sort of just finished her studying i came back and we both decided to go to india to really see what the next step was for us and i think we didn't really know um what we were going to look for we just knew that we didn't have a, a an exact idea of what the next stage in our life was and we wanted to get some uh, some ideas from that oh hey yeah claybone Good to have you join us. Uh, so yeah, if you've got any uh, uh, comments about either of those, please do share because they're both yeah great people. Uh, Terence McKenna and Alan Watts. Anyway, so we went to India for six months. Um, during that time, we met uh, two Steemians. Um, we didn't know at the time, but <laughs> later we discovered Eco Alex, whom I. I'm, I'm working on the Eco Village with, and he's coming in February. If you haven't been following, then go check him out. And uh, a Steamian who isn't on as much anymore, but Eco know me, he was, um, we were much closer with him, and he actually taught us uh, for three months various subjects about growing food, mycology, um, you know, earthships, waterworks, water management, uh, everything that has to do with basically uh, self-sustaining yourself from the land. It was literally a life-changing experience and even though we kind of expected or even were looking for something like that, um, it was just absolutely so intense and surprising just it was very very powerful i won't go into all of the things that i experienced there it definitely changed both of us uh, from then on but that was when we sort of got a very clear idea of the eco village and how we wanted to live our life ah uh, uh, claybone asks if i'm a fan of uh, ramdas i haven't actually listened to ramdas that much um but i did like what i heard i think i listened to more interviews between him and uh, terence mckenna but uh, no, I never really got into it. Maybe send me a, a link of something good if you've got. Anyway, so during this time, uh, my wife and I actually started writing a book together. And this book was sort of, we felt the message that we wanted to pass on. We felt that there weren't that many sources in Hebrew. And so if you didn't read English or if you didn't uh, understand English, then a lot of these things would sort of be closed off. And so we wanted to try and do our part as people who 
were exposed to these ideas and happened to know Hebrew to write a book in Hebrew about this. So it's actually being translated into English uh, right now as well. So we'll see, maybe I'll uh, update on that later. But the general idea wasn't specifically about the eco-village. It was more about the model, sort of the problems of the world, the way that we saw them, and the model that we suggested that would replace some of the systems that we felt had some problems. So I'll get into much more of that later on, but just to sort of lead us back to Portugal, since that moment, coming back from India in 2016, um, both my wife and I have been working very hard towards living life in nature the way we want. And initially the plan was to do this in Israel until we uh, discovered that it was uh, completely illegal, basically. Uh, harvesting rainwater, biogas, building without foundations, all of these things are literally illegal in Israel. And when we understood that was the case, we sort of gathered that that wasn't going to be an option. And so we started looking for alternatives. And since we knew what we wanted, that was really the the leading cause of what made us uh, look for a place where we could buy land relatively cheaply, uh, that the government would be supportive of an ecological lifestyle with all of that entails, where immigration would be possible, where the language wouldn't be too hard. And so all of these different constraints really narrowed it down. I think the two finalists were probably South America, uh, which <laughs> is a continent and lots and lots of places, but that uh, region and Portugal. And in the end, I think one of the biggest deciding factors was the distance from our families being from Israel, you know, four hours versus 14 hours is a pretty big uh, difference. So we worked and saved up and eventually uh, came to a point where we feel you know, where we felt we were ready and we made the uh, plunge and moved to Portugal. So we've been here now for four months and a bit. And um, if you've been following the, the story on Steam, you can see the progress of basically what's been happening, but it's been absolutely amazing so far. So that's a little bit about me. Um, if anyone has any questions or anything like that, you can just write in the chat and I'm sort of peeking every once in a while, but I'm gonna move on to the second part, which is obviously the uh, more interesting one as well which is the eco-village model. Now, I'm just going to say that I want this, um, this podcast to be about the model and not the eco-village that we are designing here in Portugal. And so I want to just um, iterate the exact difference between those two. There is the eco-village that we want to live in that's being designed with people and it's going to be here in Portugal, etc., etc. But I feel that's a small part of a much grander scheme and much grander plan that, that I can see. And that is that this eco-village will be the first of uh, many, many eco-villages worldwide which will eventually be able to replace the current way of life. And so when I'm talking about the eco-village model, this is a global model that will be um, applicable anywhere and will obviously be changed to fit whatever region or area that it's in. But the model itself will have principles that are global, that, are, um, that aren't changeable, and that will be a sort of template. So that's what I mean when I say the eco-village model. Uh, oh, Revise Sociology. Great to have you here. I didn't even see you on the chat. Uh, the region in Portugal is central Portugal. It's actually half an hour from the Spanish border. Um, you can look it up in Google Max Panama Core, but it's the Castelo Branco uh, region. Excuse my uh, accent. Okay. So there's a few points that I want to go over with the uh, eco-village model. Oh, and Pensif is here. Thanks for joining. Wow, this is uh, much more intimidating when I start seeing how many people are actually listening. So I'm going to carry on. Um, so basically, there's a few principles that I'm going to go over. And these are very, very broad principles, which over the next few episodes, I'm going to be sort of going deeper into each one and really um, expanding on it. 
So the first thing I want to talk about, as far as I'm concerned, is sort of the underlying um, philosophy or worldview that I see under this whole um, eco-village model, which is modeling based on natural systems. Uh, there is a term for this, and it's called biomimicry. And if you haven't heard of it, again, I'll offer a short explanation, but I really suggest if you're interested to go and research because it is fascinating. This really blew my mind when I st started, first uh, started to, to read about it. Biomimicry is, as it sounds, mimicking life, mimicking nature, which is, I'll give the easiest example that's most, uh, I think, most famous, which are food forests. So the idea behind a food forest is you take your garden or your land or wherever you want to grow food and you design it based on the principles that work in a forest. The idea being that a forest manages to self-regulate itself, um, self-regulate with all of the different variables that are needed. It gets its own water, provides its own food to all the organisms that live in and is a completely self-sufficient system and if you can model that in your garden then you can have a place where the food is actually sort of growing itself as it were obviously when you design a forest that's more um, in tune with what you want and that you model it around your needs as well but that the modeling is done not in any other consideration but what is the natural system that i can emulate that i can copy in order to get the best result and I think that this philosophy, that this worldview is not only applicable to agriculture, which is where obviously it's most famous, but in various other areas. And I'll, I'll go through a few of them uh, in relation to the eco-village model. So first, um, we can obviously talk a lot about uh, self-sufficiency and providing for ourselves. And I don't want to get too deep into it because that's another subject that there's a lot of sources out there that are much more proficient than, uh, than I am. And so I'll leave that to them. But the mindset is, Masanobu Fukuoka talked about this, when we approach our tasks, we can approach them in different ways. And I think one of, the, one of the most common ways of approaching it is sort of looking at the problem, analyzing it to see a solution and finding um, the quickest solution for that problem. So I'm gonna give an example. Let's say I'm growing food and I need to water it. I go and get the hose and I connect it and now it's being watered. But there's another way, I think, to approach problems and to approach sort of solutions that we're thinking about. And that is to look at any problem as part of an equation of two sides where it's a very famous cliche, but one, you know, one man's problem is another man's solution. If you can find the other part of the equation where your problem becomes the solution for something else, you can immediately reap a benefit from something that was actually uh, causing harm or whatever, costing you some kind of resource. And that's what we see in nature all the time, that give and take and these systems that develop and stabilize over the time, they stabilize thanks to this continuous relationship of give and take of one man's is the other's and so on. So let's talk a little bit about um, life in the eco-village to really start getting to the nitty-gritty of this. When I view people in the eco-village around me, let me say that when I, when I started thinking about this, there are lots and lots of communities around the world that are doing something that I think would seem very similar to what I'm proposing. And I've visited some of them, I've heard of many more, and I know friends who have lived on many more, and the numbers are quite worrying. Basically, if you're starting a community, a self-sufficient community, statistically, you're more likely not to succeed in the long run than you are. Um, and this led me to start and investigate why is that? What's the, what's the problem that seems to be causing all of these amazing ideas and really amazing people who come together with so much purpose and hope 
And over time, the same thing seems to happen where whatever you want to call it, you know, interpersonal relationships, politics, ego, emotions, all of these messy things that might take five or ten years to surface, but eventually put so much pressure that people either start leaving or in some cases there is even some kind of, you know, uh, implosion that, that sort of rips it apart. And this is a real worry for me, and it's something that I really want to um, safeguard against as efficiently as possible, because I think it's the number one problem. And in all of the cases where I saw that this was happening, that there was this sort of pressure that was building underneath, I think it almost always relates to freedom and lack thereof. And so there are always these guidelines and rules, and people are forced or you know ex expected to do x amount of hours of work or donate a certain amount of money or pay for services or give a percentage or whatever it is in order for them to function in the eco village or in the community and over time this always leads to an imbalance because people are very different and even when you try and get only the same kind of people in one place as long as they're similar enough, they will continue to look harder and harder for the differences and focus on that. Uh, I've lived through this personally, and I'm sure you can relate each to your own e region. But uh, when people, when two cultures live very close together, they become very, very similar and they seem to hate each other more and more. And the more similar they seem to people outside, the more they notice the differences. And it's a very odd phenomenon that I think is one that's worth paying attention to. In my, uh, in my original country, it causes a lot of uh, strife and uh, problems. So anyway, that's unrelated to this. But basically, when I'm talking about people living in an eco-village, what I envision is people while living much more freely without the need um, to sort of own up to anyone who's overlooking. So this idea is probably my most uh, argued point, and it has another part to it, which is, um, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but when I'm talking about this, the way that I see it working, uh, the biomimicry element that I would like to incorporate is based on how an ant colony uh, basically functions. And so an ant colony is, is a very, very interesting organism. Um, I think once people used to believe that the queen sort of telepathically messages out to all the millions of ants what they need to do at every one time. And that really shows, I mention that because it shows the mentality um, what we'll call centralization, which is you've got a, a one locale with all of the power directing all of the different parts that are far away from it. And that's not, um, that's basically not a way that anything uh, uh, in nature arises when it comes to complex systems, whether it's mycelial networks or the roots of a tree or our body or our neural networks or an ant colony there's a very different system in play, which is every individual is technically free to do what they want individually. And so if you look at um, ants that are on, you know, some kind of mission, let's say they're cleaning up some debris that's at the entrance to the uh, nest, you can see a group of ants sort of going together and doing this job. But if you stay and watch, you'll see that constantly there are ants, there are ants that are leaving that job. And at the same time, there are new ants that are coming in all the time. And if you, if you sit and watch ants really at work, it's absolute chaos. Most of them have no idea where they're going. Some of them go around in circles. Some of them can go, you know, very far off in one direction and they just turn around and come all the way back. It's complete hectic chaos. No one is telling anyone what to do. And yet, a very interesting fact about ant colonies is that ants only live one year, uh, more or less, but ant colonies can survive up to 10 and 15 years. And over that period of time, an ant colony will change its behavior. 
And this is very surprising because if ants only live for one year and we're assuming there are no ant schools where they teach the next generation in advance, where is this information being encoded that's passed on from generation to generation and accumulated that leads to a change in the whole organism? And I think, well, I won't <laughs> attempt to answer that very mysterious question, but I would like to try and emulate it as best I can. And so this actually relates very much to the Tao, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But basically, there seems to be this kind of magic that nature has that arises from chaos. And we can see it. Um, presented in evolution with, you know, natural selection or with mutations, or we can see it in small organisms or large parts of space. So much of what happens we call random and it seems chaotic. And yet we constantly see these systems and more complex systems come out uh, from there. So I think, or my, my vision for the future, I say, is that people really can be the same way. And the reason I believe this is because I look at different societies, let's say not modern society the way that we know it, but let's go back and think to simpler times as it was. In a village, um, there weren't any written laws or rules. Obviously, you know, no one could steal, no one could murder, and if you did, they probably had the guard or whatever come and they could punish those who were necessary. But there was no real governing body on the day-to-day -day life. And the way that these villages worked was that everyone more or less sort of gone about with their business and uh, you just develop natural relationships and since there's no other options you're not thinking about leaving anywhere else you're not considering what better opportunities you might have you know all of these different things that can kind of i won't say distract us but they can definitely cause for like stress between people were much much few and far between because there was much less going on and I'm not saying the people back then uh, were happier, definitely not uh, in terms of what we know about that time. And I'm definitely not saying that I would like to go back to the dark ages or make the community, uh, you know, uh, without technology or whatever. But what I am trying to say is that I believe people still have the potential within to reach a, a natural state of order that doesn't come from rules and regulations and doesn't come from telling people how much they have to do or give, but it comes from people naturally um, leaning towards what they want to do. And so we can see this in many different examples, but if someone is working or if someone is doing something that they don't want to, they do it very, very differently. And if someone comes to work where they're passionate about it, where they would actually do it even if they weren't getting paid, we all know what the difference is and what that can lead to. And so I really believe that if people were given um, the freedom, the space and the time to not have to worry about their survival, but to be able to naturally gravitate towards what they want, they would have a much easier time accepting other people and they would have a much easier time finding things that they were passionate about and uh, doing that. So I'm just going to go through the chat. Oh, I can see that. Uh, uh, yes, very interesting. Order doesn't exist without chaos, just like chaos doesn't exist without order. Uh, yeah, yin yang. Absolutely. So um, this is a, is a concept that I see in nature where there's no governing body, there's no rules, there's no language. And indeed, there's a lot more violence and, and, and a lot more things that I wouldn't like to have uh, in the village. But at the same time, this natural balance, this natural order does tend to arise. Without it, we wouldn't have complex systems. Now, obviously, all systems are temporary and however complex or whatever, there's also 
entropy and things come apart even in nature i'm not saying that anything is you know um can never be brought down but i think it's a very good starting point when you want to design uh an environment where people will interact in a healthy way as often as possible than to emulate the natural systems that develop this uh, by themselves is I think a very good way to go and so I've touched on a few topics there sorry that might have been a little bit <laughs> going all around but I want to bring it back to a few key points um, to, to sort of uh, put this all into perspective nicely so the next concept that I'm, that I'm going to talk about is, uh, oh, just a minute. Ah, absolutely. Revive Sociology says all of this requires us to give up the comfort of rules and certainty, of course. So I'm going to get into that more later. But yes, definitely. It, it requires giving up that illusion of control where I know what's going to happen. And if I, if I behave well, then I'm guaranteed X, Y and Z. Um, but I think we all know that in reality that doesn't always uh, happen. Um, patient Zero asks if I'm certain we should give up the rules. No, I'm not saying we should give up rules in general or the concept of rules. And certainly we need the rules to be in place for people to feel safe. The question is which rules and even more importantly, how many rules or what kind of rules? And so I'm specifically talking, I wrote about this before in the post and I wanted to talk about a little bit, things like um, community meals being forced, you know, an X number of times, there's three meals a day, everyone has to take part in at least two meals a week, I'm just saying. I don't believe in those kind of rules, rules that are putting pressure on people, on, sorry, putting pressure on people to be part of the group. I think this also stems from my experience. Um, a lot of the time dealing with people who wanted me to partake, wanted me to be part of the group. I wasn't always the best uh, team player, mainly, and this is my point, because I didn't believe in the group, whether it was school, whether it was the army, whether it was all these programs that were available because that's what people do, but it wasn't something I believed in personally. Um, so when I talk about these rules in general, I'm talking about rules that are limiting people's freedoms instead of fostering a feeling of community that would encourage people to do this without the rules. And so I, you know, make it very clear that this isn't uh, <laughs> anarchical. I have a, a young child who my uh, would not want to live in an environment where, you know, I wouldn't feel that he was safe. So clearly there are going to be rules and anyone who oversteps or whatever, um, they will be dealt with in whatever way and some people won't be, uh, you know, they're not going to be right for the eco-village or the eco-village won't be right for them. I completely accept that. But when we're going over the rules and when we're going over how do we construct a society where we foster a sense of community that will bind us together, in a lot of cases we've seen that people felt that you need this sort of routine, these rigid structures that will force everyone to spend time together and to share their thoughts and to share their feelings. And I don't want to force that. I think it can come up naturally much, much more easily and uh, more healthily. Um, okay, so just in the chat, I've got a few. Uh, Revised Sociologist says, just to drop in as a sociologist, you're chiming with Zygmunt Bauman's ideas on postmodern ethics. My friend, uh, when he hears this, is going to be so happy uh, to read that comment. Um, I, I actually haven't read, I've only heard about Bauman uh, from this friend of mine, so I'm going to make sure afterwards to, to read up on him. Thanks for that, uh, Revived Sociology. Okay, so let's move on to another concept which is very important. What are we doing on time? Okay, excellent. So there's one concept that I want to talk about which is uh, abundance mindset. And this is a phrase that was coined by, oh, I can't remember who originally used it, but I'll give my definition so that we're all on the same page. Um, 
I think the easiest way to sort of demonstrate it is through the opposite, which is what I feel I was taught by capitalism, which is to constantly be searching for that next newer, better product and constantly feeling uh, in the need of something else, feeling lacking. And so when I talk about an abundance mindset, I really mean that this is a, a very deep part of, uh, of the human consciousness that has to be present in the eco-village. And this is a feeling that I believe will be fostered by showing abundance and having people live uh, in this abundance will actually bring it home much better than I could ever explain it to someone or try and convince someone. But when I was traveling around and when I was meeting uh, people, I was constantly having this conversation and talking to them about how all of the cost of living was so high and nature provides everything for free. And everyone had the same uh, understanding of what I was talking about. And so no matter what age, no matter what sector of life or what country, everyone was in the same position of feeling that before you can live, before you can do anything else, you've got to get rid of this whole survival, uh, struggle, work, you know, all these very tough constraints that we just have to deal with. They're just part of life. But at the same time, when I was talking about these solutions, it was very hard for people to grasp. They could never really let go of that feeling of owing something to someone. I owe my time, I owe my money, I owe something, and I'm not truly free. I'm indebted. And this led me to believe that the abundance mindset, which I, I, I would like to say it's something that I practice. I can't say that I'm uh, beyond, you know, ever wanting anything. But um, I would like to say that I'm really consciously trying to remember that in the same way that things come and go, our illusion that we're needing something or that we don't have something that we need uh, is always possible to have that mindset. No matter where I am in life, no matter what I'm doing or what I have, I can always feel that lacking. And if that's the case, then it should be that no matter where I am in life, I can always feel the opposite. I can always feel abundance. And this is much more true you know, we, we could talk about this philosophically, that you can be content with whatever you have, and as long as I'm healthy and my family is good, then what more could I want? But I really mean in a deeper sense that with the eco-village, once the self-sustaining systems are in place and people no longer have to work or pay for food or for their home, or for electricity, or for water, or for any of their survival needs, there's a very large shift in consciousness that could happen to suddenly sort of exhale and just feel free to say, okay, I now don't have to do anything to survive. What do I really want to do? And I feel that anyone in the eco-village who doesn't have this mindset that would be the easiest place for them to start this sort of thought process of comparing themselves to others, seeing how much other people are giving, how much people are getting, what's my percentage, and all of these calculations that as soon as we start making them, I think that they really can be so, so detrimental. I've seen it happen uh, so many times. And if you've got someone saying, you know what? I'm going to go and uh, build a shed for the goats, not because anyone asked me, not because I have to, just because I want to. And then you go and someone sees you on the way and says, oh, what are you doing? And you say, I'm just going to go and build a shed. And they say, oh, let me join you. I've got some nails and some timber. And before you know it, without any rules or regulations, people naturally are going to do something because just because that's what they want to do, that's the feeling that, I've, that I want to, to foster in the eco-village, that everything that's done is actually done from a pure place of wishing to do it and nothing else. And I believe that's tied into the feeling of abundance, 
where only when I feel that all of my needs are met, that I don't have to fight for my survival, that I can actually reach this state of wanting to do things freely and not wanting anything back because I'm not lacking. Um, Daniel Frank Lamb said, asks uh, if I'm talking about a kibbutz. I, I won't go too far into this, but I'm, I'm Israeli, so I grew up on the concept of kibbutz and I, I have a lot to say on the subject. I personally never really connected with it, mainly because I've met so many people who grew up on kibbutz and regardless of uh, the way they uh, educated or, or treated children, we won't go into that, but everyone I met grew up with this horrible feeling where everyone knew everything around them, um, they had no privacy, they were constantly judged, the same people who knew them as babies knew them throughout their lives, and there was this real sense of the opposite of a community, this sense that there's a lot of tension underneath. Now, a lot of that was brought on because of the economic model, which is complete sharing of individual households, and you would meet and decide who gets what. And once that sort of broke up and they were privatized and became not kibbutzim, but basically just, uh, I can't remember the word in English, but like villages, they're called moshav. Um, it's technically still called a kibbutz, but it's a privatized kibbutz. A lot of those problems went away. And some people worked in certain jobs that yielded more money and that was fine. And other people were making less money and that was also okay. And suddenly all of that tension uh, seemed to vanish, not, not, not because people were making or giving more or less, but because there wasn't that feeling of I'm responsible for them, they're affecting my economy, etc. And so I actually want to lead on with this because that ties in very nicely to my next uh, subject, which is um, individualized households. And this is very crucial. So before I get into that, let me just go through the chat very quickly. Okay, Rondon asked what the incentives. I'll just very quickly and simply say, you know, how should I put it? The same incentives that an ant has. You know, and this is very Taoist. An ant or a person or whatever, you know, eats when he wants to eat, sleeps when he wants to sleep, uh, shits when he wants to shit. And that's it. And I think that that simplicity, although it's obviously slightly exaggerated, is definitely the way to go. When I want to incentivize someone else to do something, I think the best way would be to do it myself and to show by example and to try and bring people along in the same way we do that in life. In life, I never think, okay, what kind of rules or what you know, incentives can I offer? Or how can I make my friend do something? I very often come and say, hey, I need a favor. I'm moving house. Can you come and help me pack up some stuff? And either they say yes or they say no. But there's this very, very easygoing, natural uh, relationship that happens between friends and that has to be the guiding principle not incentives of you have to do this because but let everyone do what they want and see where that gets us okay that was a little too long for, for one question um, Ah, swoop okay you know what swoop I'm gonna answer that question at the end because I'm not sure how long I'm going to get into that, but I, I do have a, a lot I want to say about welfare, and I think welfare uh, it doesn't work, basically. But never mind that. Um, I mean, not never mind that, sorry. I will get back to that, but later. Uh, let's see, patient zero, he was until he learned it was illegal. Oh, sorry, I might have uh, missed the <laughs> start of that. Um, okay. We have, yeah, Revised Sociology says we have the royal family as a great example. Okay, so I'm just going to move on to the next subject. I keep writing in chat and I will keep uh, popping in, but I'm noticing that somehow these 50 minutes flew by and I'm, uh, <laughs> I want to get through what I, uh, what I had. But no rush, just, uh, you know, first show and nervous. 
Okay, so the next point which ties into what we were talking about with these kibbutzim is individual households. When I first, um, when we, I should say, I'm going to speak uh, in first person just because it's easier. Everything I say, my wife and I did together, but it'll just uh, make it flow more. So when I first was talking about the idea of the eco-village and I was talking to people in, uh, in Hebrew from Israel, I was calling it always a community. And I noticed that people had this real... Um, what Kajibsky called semantic reaction. They had this real sort of, they would tense up at the word community. I think the closest uh, translation for that word from Hebrew would be a commune. And a lot of people, well, everyone I told was automatically assuming that I meant people, a kibbutz, sharing their money, sharing the work, you know, going over different finances together and everyone was very very apprehensive about that and so we decided to change the term to eco village um, and <laughs> that was really one of the big reasons but it's because this is such an important point I, I don't understand basically how that became an idea that if we shared money and gave it out equally that somehow would make everything okay I don't think people should get the same amount of money. I don't think they do. I think people are very, very diverse. And the more we try to generalize and make everyone the same and behave the same, it really doesn't, uh, <laughs> it really doesn't work that well. And I think one of the principles, if we're talking about biomimicry, we can look at uh, monoculture where the less diversity the easier it is to maintain and manage in a way because it's all very organized, but the much less successful it is. And so when it comes to the people in the eco-village living together, it is absolutely crucial for each one of those units to be a separate unit in terms of its functioning. So this is both um, sustainability, uh, uh, all of the... Um, life-sustaining systems must be on an individual basis per, you know, unit, per house, per family, per individual, whatever it is. But the water, the food, the uh, waste management, all of that has to be completely decentralized and just by a unit-by-unit unit basis. And the second part of that is obviously the economics, the money. Um, I won't go into the exact numbers as that's not relevant, I think, for what I'm trying to say right now. But there will be a separation between an individual's money and the eco-village's money. The idea being that the eco-village will hold as little money as possible. Since this really isn't necessary for anything, you only want to use it to do things with it. But the main idea is that there will be different levels of wealth in the community. There will be some people who will have more money, who will be able to go and have different experience thanks to that. And there will be people, people who will have less. And I don't see that as being the problem, or even more so, I would say, if that becomes a problem, then it doesn't matter how much money people have, it will always be a problem. If we can't learn to live with different people having different needs and being treated differently, then I think um, it's going to be a real problem down the line. Now, Rondon is saying, are you sure this isn't a cult? I'm pretty sure, though, if you get down to the definition of what a cult is, you know, it's kind of hard to draw the lines. I think as long as the place is beneficial to people, um, you really shouldn't call it a cult in a way. But in terms of people following the same line, then absolutely not. Um, I think it's much more anarchical in the sense that if somebody wants to do something, they pretty much can and they shouldn't have to ask permission from too many, obviously, as long as they're not hurting anyone or impeding or anything, etc., etc. But if you want to go and do something, I really, you know, if I want to in the eco-village, I don't want to have to go through all this red tape of getting it approved by 12 members who one of them is holding a grudge so they can use that over me. And why not just have a place where everyone is free to live their own way? And if you have a good environment where everyone is provided for, and this is obviously crucial, but where everyone has all of their needs, then I really think people 
can be much more forgiving and much more open and accepting of different people wanting to to do different things. So uh, it's very much not a cult uh, in my mind. You know, come back to me in 20 years and see see what the situation is. But I'll do my best. Okay, I've gone. I've got six minutes to the end of the show. I can't believe this flew by. Um, So let me just go over the chat very quickly and see if there's anything I missed. Oh, swoop. Excellent. Well, you know what? We're going to have people staying for different times as well. So uh, you're more than welcome. Oh, revised sociology said uh, Lamaze model. Lamaze? Lamaze? Oh, West Wales. My mum, my parents lived in Wales before they came to Israel. My mum was uh, originally moved there when she was five. Um, Patient Zero says so many things are cults, even cultures. Exactly. Yes. K-12 college, corporate culture, the military. I was in uh, many of those. Um, Okay. Swoop. I'm just going to very quickly. I'm sorry to do this. Oh, Whoa, you know Kozhibsky? Wow, nice. The map is... Not, that's my... Uh, I have that tattooed on my leg. The map is not the territory. Uh, great quote. Okay. I'm just going to go back to your comment, which I said I would go for. Um, oh, I can't find it now. What was your question again? I'm so sorry. Oh, welfare. Right, right, right. Yes. This is obviously a big question. And it boils down to a conversation I've had with my friends many times of whether the nature of man is good or evil. Um, Can you trust people to make the right choice? Uh, What happens in a real anarchy? And this is something that I'm going to, in a way, bet uh, my life on and uh, pursue this uh, thought. But I think that the reason people on welfare behave the way they do, a lot of the time, not everyone, obviously, is because of what I was talking about, their mentality, um, you know, this scarce mentality where no matter how much I have or how much I'm getting or if it's for free, I'm constantly making this calculation of what it's worth, what's worth my time, what do I do, etc., etc. And that, I think, causes people to feel that they need to defend themselves, they need to make sure they're looking after their own benefits because everyone is out to get them. And many times when I've met these people and talked to them, they really have a victim mentality. They feel the whole world is against them. It wasn't their fault. They're doing everything they can. And so why can't they just lie and cheat a little bit or get something through or whatever and and do what I have to do to survive because I'm a victim here? That's exactly what I want to change, where people don't view themselves as having to fight for, you know, I don't have to be lazy to get out of something. I don't have to lie in order to get my way. If you don't want to do something, you don't have to do it. If you want to join in, you're more than welcome. And I really believe that over time, people will learn to develop a much more accepting and and be motivated to do a lot more. But, okay, that's a very, very short answer. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this more, I think, in coming uh, 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 shows because it's a very important issue and I'm afraid I really don't have time to go into it right now. Okay, so we've got about three minutes left. Um, let me just go through the chat. <laughs> Swoop says humans are scheming scoundrels. That has been the case, but uh, are you a scheming scoundrel? You know, because if you uh, say you are, then how can I believe you if you're scheming? Um, my foster mom. Oh, nice. Daniel Frank Lamb says his mum's also. Okay. <laughs> I assume you're joking, Swoop, about the uh, Kozhibsky stamp, because if not, then mad respect, bro. Yeah, seriously. Okay. I think that's uh, most of it. So I'm just going to end with a quick quote which uh, I don't know if it's too pretentious or just enough, but uh, it really is something that I wanted to um, read from the Tao Te Ching, the, the text of the, of, uh, the Taoist religion. Um, and I think it sort of summarizes a lot of what I was going to say. It's not the whole part. If you want to read the whole thing, it's uh, chapter 57. There's a few translations. I can't remember which one this is, but it's the one I connected to. Um, Okay, here goes. Therefore, the sage says, I take no action and people are reformed. I enjoy peace and people become honest. I do nothing and people become rich. 
I have no desires, and people return to the good and simple life. Strong words. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll see, I think, in the coming years um, how uh, out of my mind I am. But that's been me. I hope you enjoyed it uh, every week on Thursday. If you're tuning in online anywhere, then it'll be up on 3Speak on uh, some sound platform where you can download the audio. I'm not sure where yet. But uh, yes, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've been all Lev. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, that's it from me. Tune in next time. Right? Is that... I'll actually make sure with uh, <laughs> Ron done. Can I go off the air or is it too early still? I have to wait another 20 seconds for the synchronized watch. Oh, thank you so much, guys. I, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Wow. Thank you. <laughs>